Colossians 3.16 um, says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I just want to say thank you to the music team. That was just a great reminder and, and just really invoked my heart uh, with thanksgiving unto the Lord. Just to, um, I could tell our, the music team just wants to um, serve the Lord, serve the church with excellence, and, and it shows. And it was very, very um, moving. And sometimes as a preacher, I forget that I have to preach because I'm so... Um, into the songs, and, and so I was just a very, very thankful to the Lord for all of you guys um, for song choices and just, just everything. Thank you. Um, turn your Bible with me now to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, and let's all stand together as we read God's word. Now hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, 
There was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after their kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over the, all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. The, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for, plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was moaning the sixth day. Turn your Bible with me to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. Draw our attention to verse 15. He, referring to Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things had been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. May God bless his holy and authoritative and sufficient word. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and remind it so powerfully through the songs and the music in which we've been led to, to worship you and to sing out of our hearts with gratitude. And we're so thankful for such truth and reminder to worship you, for you are our God, for you are our Father. You loved us so much 
that you send your only son to be the propitiation for our sin, whereby we've been adopted into your family. Thank you for such a wonderful reminder this morning. And as we read from Genesis 1, we're reminded once again of who you are, and we're reminded how how the Bible begins and how the story of redemption begins. We're so grateful for your word that you have given to us. We're grateful that, that you have given the church the gift, namely your word to us. And so that we may know you, we may not be in darkness as to who our creator is, And so, God, we pray by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God would teach us and explain the truth to us. Help us to see you through the pages of this scripture. We're reminded that as we look upon the holiness and the greatness of God, we're often reminded how feeble we are, Lord, we have many families that are represented here. We are people of many, many needs. We pray, O oh God, that perhaps there are families who are going through major financial struggle, but God, that you be faithful in providing to those needs, those families. We pray, Father, for families and friends that we know of who are struggling with physical ailments, or that you would work through their lives and that you work through even medicines to make them whole. We pray that your will be done. We pray for our loved ones and friends and others who do not know you. We pray, oh God, just as you sovereignly saved us, Lord, would you, by your grace, Bring them into the sheepfold. We pray this morning that your spirit will bless the time of your word. Teach us. Open our eyes to your truth. Bring us clarity and conviction and comfort. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The title of this message... And this is part two of where we left off last Lord's Day. The title of this message is Behold Your God. Behold Your God. The story of God's redemption, also the gospel, begins with the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. This sets the tone for how we approach the Bible, read the Bible, interpret the Bible, and apply the Bible. That means we approach the Bible with reverence and believe that it is the Word of God. We then read the Bible eagerly expecting that God speaks because God is alive and His Word is the living Word. We then interpret the Bible theocentrically, 
which means God-centered, that is, because God is the center and focus of the Bible. And finally, we apply the Bible not only because it's good for us, but for the glory of God. Hence, the first four words of the Bible set the tone for how we approach, read, interpret, and apply the Bible. The first four words also point out the proper order in knowing God, namely, knowing who God is takes precedence over what God did. For example, in Christian theology, especially in Christology, is really the the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In Christian theology, we also have a section called pneumatology, which is the study of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, when we're studying about God, the theology proper, that is, is a study of who God is and his works. So even in theology, we always emphasize on the person of each person of the triunity, and then we study the works. So before learning about what God did, knowing who God is should take precedence. In Genesis 1, before studying the creation, we first come face-to-face reality with the Creator. And so often we approach Genesis, texts like Genesis, and we can get so off the track. And, and we often say, you know, you can look at the tree extensively. And by so doing, nothing wrong with examining the tree extensively, but if, you, that's, if that's all you do, you forget the entire forest. In the same way, there's so much more in Genesis 1 than, than some of the subtopics that are presented here. As I mentioned, the main character of Genesis 1 is not so much about creation, it's about the creator. And once we understand who the creator is, what he does makes a lot of sense. So knowing who God is and growing in such knowledge help to understand his works. And so often people struggle to understand what God did in the past. Perhaps some of you are sitting here this morning. You struggle with why God did what he did in the past. What God is doing presently. Perhaps you're struggling with that at this very moment. And what God will do in the future. We struggle with these things because we fail to understand who God is. Knowing the true, the living God is foundational to all that we are. Our identity, that is. And all that we do, that's our mission. So to say it negatively, if we don't understand who God is, we display massive confusion and denial of natural law and order in creation, such as gender and sexuality. 
If we don't understand who God is, we display massive confusion and denial of the creation mandate, such as procreation by marriage, vocation, and even Sabbath, both physically and spiritually. If we don't understand who God is, we will have a high view of ourselves and a low view of him. If we don't know who God is, that's right, we will have a high view of ourselves and a low view of his word. We have a high view of our opinions and low view of his word. Did you ever meet Yabbits? People who are Yabbits? Yeah, that's what the Bible says, but. Yeah, that's what the Bible says, but. Like our opinions is more important than what the Bible says. So failing to grow in the knowledge of the true and the living God has a detrimental impact on how we worship, how we preach, how we teach, how we do church, and so on. And I hope you get the point. Knowing the true and the living God is foundational to all that we do and all that we are. So the Bible and the gospel begins with who God is. God is the Elohim, the triune God, first and foremost. And before we read the rest of the Bible, we encounter this powerful reality, this powerful and positive confrontation with who it is that the rest of the Bible is about. After we encounter who God is, without any hesitation, we are then positively confronted with the very first act of God or the work of God, namely the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So knowing God is the basis for understanding the works of God. So from here in Genesis 1, we have learned so far the following. And this was just a quick recap of the last message. I gave you about seven things that we can see here from Genesis 1. God is a God of revelation. Secondly, God is a God of self-existence. Third, God is a God of self-authority. Fourthly, God is a God of self-sufficiency. Fifth, God is God of power. Sixth, God is God of triune God. He's a triune God. And lastly, number seven, God is God of goodness. So in Christian theology, these truths are called theology proper. They specifically deal with God's character and his attributes. And these are foundational Christian truth. If I would turn this positive truth into negatively, if we have a wrong view of God, we're going to have a wrong view of the Bible. If we have a wrong view of God, we're going to have a wrong view of ourselves in sin. If we have a wrong view of God, we have a wrong view of the gospel and salvation. 
if we have a wrong view of God, we're going to have a wrong view of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If we have a wrong view of God, we're going to have a wrong view of the church. And if we have a wrong view of God, we're going to have a wrong view of worship and so on. So it is crucial for God's people to have the true vision of God. And that's the mission for me as a pastor and as a preacher, to help people recapture the true vision of God. Not a vision that we make of who God is. John Calvin said, our hearts are factory of, factories of idols. Even how we imagine God, we redefine God, we reimagine God into our fallen nature. So it's very, very important for us to see God for who he is as he revealed himself to us through his word. Not God that you and I make up, but the God of the Bible. So with that in mind, I want to add the eighth truth about God to the list from last week. So here it goes. Number eight, God is the God of perfection. God is the God of perfection. This particular truth or this particular attribute flows naturally from the goodness of God, which reflects in his creation. Every time God oversaw his finished work, he declared it was good instead of bad, instead of mistake, imperfect, inadequate, or irrelevant. According to one theologian, God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. That means all that God is, his character or attribute is perfect without any flaw. That means God is perfect in his goodness. God is perfect in the unity of the triune Godhead. God is perfect in his power. God is perfect in his self-sufficiency. God is perfect in his self-authority. God is perfect in his self-existence. And God is perfect in his revelation. Hence, God's perfection speaks of his moral quality. Also, there is another sense in which God's perfection speaks of not only his moral quality, but also his moral standard. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, the Sermon on the Mount? He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is, what? Perfect. When you understand, when you understand that God is perfect, in his character, especially in both moral quality and standard, it's not, difficult to, it's not difficult to grasp then what he does is perfect. So you have to understand God is perfect in who he is. If that's the case, it is the case. If that is the case, then what he does is perfect. Think of it. Because God is perfect, that means his being, that is, then I can trust what he did. I can trust 
what he does. I can trust what he will do. That means God makes no past, present, or future mistakes. The Bible is covered with this truth and this reminder. For example, Psalm 1830 says, As for God, his way is blameless. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Isaiah 25, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. How about Romans 12? Not only what we just heard what Psalmist said, what the prophet Isaiah said, but listen to what Apostle Paul said. In, in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is perfect. Philippians 1.6 for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And lastly, James. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So the Bible is filled with such reminder that his ways are perfect because what he does is reflection of his character. So whatever God, it, God did in the past, what God does presently or what he will do in the future are always to be understood in light of God's perfection. Dear people of God, that includes your precious life. God did not make a mistake with you in the past. God did not make a mistake with you presently. And God will not make a mistake with you in the future. So dear people of God, take comfort. Take comfort in this truth. That God is perfect. He is working whatever is working out in your life. It's for his glory and for your good. Here's a ninth truth. God is not only God of perfection, but God is the God of holiness. God is the God of holiness. This particular attribute is a, it's a theological it's a theologically logical conclusion from the fact that God is both good and perfect. One of the past theologians said, this is a general term for the moral excellence of God. Another writer says, God is holy because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. And the Bible is filled with such reminder that God is holy. 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one holy like the Lord. 
Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Rock refers to our comforter, our defender. Psalm 99, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Psalm, 119, Psalm 111, excuse me, Psalm 111, verse 9 says, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And lastly, Revelation 15, 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So just like God's perfection speaks of his character and work, God's holiness is no different. Who God is, again, his being, reflects what he does, his doing. Thus, God's holiness is manifested in his works. Psalm 145, verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. So whatever God does, it's not without, it's not with mistakes or there's no unrighteousness or unjust in what he does. So in Genesis 1, God cannot declare good upon his creation if he contains any imperfection or unholiness within him. You understand that? God cannot call what he created good if there was something bad in him. Because God is morally good, because God is perfect, because God is perfect in, even in his holiness, what he created was all kosher, all clean, if you will, at that time. There was nothing unclean or unkosher at the time of creation in Genesis 1. Here's a tenth truth about God. God is, as you read in Genesis 1, God is the God of order. God is the God of order. Unlike disorder, disorganization, and chaos, God is God of order. The greatest display of God's orderliness is through his creation. Unlike the evolutionary origin of disorder and chaos, and by the way, um, that's where Satan attacks. That's where the devil attacks. The origin of life is... Even as an educator, we see that in many of academic disciplines, especially in the area of science and such. That life does not begin with God. Life begins with chaos, disorder. But contrary to that, the Bible is very clear, and this is where the story of redemption begins. It tells us, out of all things that who God is, God is also God of order. So unlike the evolutionary origin of disorder 
and chaos, God, in his infinite wisdom, spent each day creating things orderly. On day one, God created day and night. On day two, he created, or excuse me, he separated earth water from the water in space. He formed land and ocean on day three and created vegetations, plants, and trees. On day four, God created the sun to light the day and moon and other stars to give light at night. On day five, God created animals for the ocean, birds for the air. With God's blessings, they were were to repopulate. That's creation mandate, we say. On day six, God created animals for the land and finally created man in his own image. But out of all of God's creations, God appointed man to rule and manage everything on the earth. And that's what we call God's creation mandate. God did not give such command to rule to giraffes, tigers, or any other creatures, but God commanded the humans to rule over his creations. Because God is a God of order. His creation order reflects him. And his creation order has divine intention and purpose. So what what God did in each day, there is purpose. It's not just fluke. For instance, there's a reason why God, God created man before woman. Why day one before day two, and so on. In other words, the creation order serves a divine purpose and function. And this truth also has a profound implication for us today. And that's why when there is a chaos, contrary to God's creation mandate, when there is a chaos in the family, there's going to be chaos in society. When there is a chaos in education, that's going to have huge ramifications in how we think and how we behave and how we live. The creation order serves a divine purpose and function. And as I mentioned, this truth has a profound implication not only in our society, but also in the church and how we worship. Because God is a God of order, we are commanded to do everything orderly in the church. 1 Corinthians 14.40 But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. That's why when we worship God, we do so in orderly fashion, not in some random way. So many churches, and that, that can mean many different ways of applying, that's why in, many, in some churches, or many churches for that matter, they, print, um, they have printed church, um, the order of church or order of worship, so worshipers can know and follow the form. We don't worship whatever or however we want. 
in the pretense or in the name of the Holy Spirit. This may shock some of you, but did you know that God does care how he is to be worshipped? We say, and this is a very common in, in the attitudes in churches, we say, oh, it doesn't matter how we worship as long as we mean it from our heart. Well, you can have a good intention or what have you, and, 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 and even some people will say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter even how we pray, just long as we pray sincerely. It doesn't matter how we worship, as long as we do so sincerely. So I would say, you can be sincere all you want, but you can be sincerely wrong. I want you to understand that God does care. I know I'm speaking to contemporary Christians. and God does care. God does care how he is to be worshipped. In Christian theology, this is, this is called the regulative principle of worship. That is to say, God, in his word, has given us regulations in how we worship him. So we don't worship God in any way or manner that we like or feel or whatever we think is cool, popular, or fitting. A case in point. You can read about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 and to see what God says about how he ought to be worshipped. Since we're on the topic of creation order, let me address, uh, here's an ancient trivia that comes up all the time, that is, what came first, folks? The eggs or chicken? Right? That's the, the ancient theological trivia. What came first? The eggs or chicken? Well, before answering that question, let me just say from Genesis 1 that everything God created was fully mature. That includes vegetations, plants, fruit trees, and all living creatures. I don't know why people have a hard time accepting that. If you know who God is, that's easy. This is certainly true of Adam, by the way, who, is, who the Bible calls the first man. Not the first infant, not the first child, but he's the first man. This is also certainly true of Eve. She was full, mature woman. That's why when Adam woke up and saw the woman, he go, whoa, man. You know, that's a Isha. That's the woman, Eve. Go, whoa. So his creations were all perfect. His creations were complete, mature, fully grown when God created them. That is why, exegetically speaking, there is no room for such view as the process of evolution or mutation or even the process of creation. That is why Adam, by the way, is the only man who did not experience birth. He never experienced birth or infant stage, or childhood, or adolescence. You know, the teenage with pimples or, and puberty. He never experienced all that and did not experience growing up into manhood. 
Also, Adam had no belly button because he had nothing to cut from. So to answer the question as to what came first, the chicken or the egg, you now know the answer. When I reflect on God's order of creation, I cannot help but appreciate his patience. It's amazing that God in his power, he realized he could have easily created all six days of worth in just one day. Think about that for a second. God in his omnipotence, his all-powerful, all-mightiness, he could have easily created all six days of worth in just one day. But he chose not to. The question is not about the ability of God. Instead, it is about his sovereign purpose. There is a purpose and there's wisdom behind what he did. There are three more truths of God to be added from Genesis 1, but I'm going to stop right here. And Lord willing, maybe um, we could revisit. Join me in prayer, would you? Father in heaven, we are humbled by such truth that you revealed to us in your word. When we understand that there is distinction between creator and creature, we know that there is, as a result of knowing who God is, there is a sense of responsibility and accountability from us to you. And as we've been reminded, when you created things, there's a divine intention and purpose. So you did not simply create us for nothing. There's a reason. There's a purpose. And we're thankful that we don't have to struggle to figure that out. For your word reminds us we've been created to glorify you. And so, Lord, we often forget. We may know who you are. You perhaps theoretically perhaps know who you are intellectually. But sometimes that has no bearing upon how we live and what that means, what that implies in our lives. So, God, would you help us by your Holy Spirit the implications as a result of knowing these truths about you. Help us to trust you. You are our God. In this world, there are so much voices and competitions that, that really compete with your truth. Help us to focus in on what you have revealed to us about you. This is the God who have created us. This is the God who loved us by sending your son. And this is the God who sanctifies us every day. We worship you. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we praise you. Amen. Amen.